Everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast, Vuelta edition. I'm back with Andrew Vons from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. If you liked us during the Tour de France, you're going to love us during the Vuelta. It's just, it's going to be more esoteric, more off the wall. Um, the racing tends to be a little bit more relaxed. I find it to be more exciting. So I'm excited to dig into this race with Andrew. Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast, Choose the Hard Way, before we get started? Yeah, for sure. So on Choose the Hard Way, my guests share stories about how hard things build stronger, more resilient human beings. And they come from a really broad variety of disciplines, everybody from the world's best big mountain skiers and venture capitalists to people from the special operations community. So if you're someone who's interested in high performance and the world's top performers, please give us a listen. It's choosethehardway.com. And we are everywhere that you listen. And you can find me in the podcast at Vance and at Hardway Pod on Twitter and Instagram. It's a great podcast. Highly recommend it. I was a, I was a guest. So if you probably enjoy at least one of us if you're listening to this. So could be a good entry point for you to get introduced to Andrew's podcast. But a lot more high-performing people than myself on there. It's a great, great resource. So Andrew, I've been out of the country, um, tucked away, high, high in the Dolomites. I feel like I've missed everything. Um, I've been, I have been. I got back just in time to watch the team time trial of the Vuelta, where Yumbo destroyed everyone as I kind of expected they would on home soil. You know, I the one thing I just want to ask you about is Primoz Roglic gained, you know, like 13 seconds on Carapaz, 14 seconds on Remco Evenepoel, and then a lot of time on everybody else, like 30, 40 seconds a minute, over a minute on Ben O'Connor. It's like, those are big gaps. If you think, especially at the Vuelta, like we've had really, really small margins the last few years. I feel like that was, it was kind of undercovered by the media. Do you feel like, I almost feel like there's a, like an inability for fans and media to conceptualize time. Like, well, there's more racing, so this is less important. But in my opinion, like time gained is time gained it doesn't matter if it happens in the first week or the third week, like you're just trying to get to Madrid faster than the other person. It's, it's interesting to me that it's not, it was not covered as such. I, I read the team time trial as a massive win for Roglic. How, how did you read that? I read it the same. I also read it as a huge loss for cycling fans everywhere because putting a team time trial at the beginning, beginning of a race just makes the race much more boring, I think, much more difficult to understand. It's a very esoteric discipline. We haven't seen it in a Grand Tour in quite a while. And I would agree with you. These are substantial time gaps. And as is often the case, when a Grand Tour is being covered, everything is terrible or everything is great. And there's no middle ground when you're reading the coverage. And it is interesting how these pretty massive time gaps just get explained away as seemingly insignificant when in fact they're not like th these could decide the race and very well may the wild card of course being whether we're going to see primos hit the deck again yeah um well I, i've thought i'll t i have a one thought about that but yeah it's like people forget in 2020 roglic won this race over carapaz by time bonuses like these are razor thin margins that Vuelta is being won by, yeah, and it just gets explained away. It's like, oh, it's it's day one. Um, I don't know if I totally disagree with you on the the team time trial. I didn't, I don't love it or hate it. It is a bit of a bummer. So it, yeah, if you're Ben O'Connor and you're on AG2R, 
you're just penalized for being poor, I guess. I don't know. I don't really love that aspect of it where it's like team with resources does well, teams without resources do poorly. And it, you know, if Naira Quintana was here, we can talk about that in a second. He just would have been blasted in this team time trial, probably even more than he would have in an individual time trial. Um, one thing about this too is I thought Roglic really got off easy. You know, he broke a vertebrae at the tour. It's a little unclear to me the timeline of this. Like apparently, he wasn't back on the bike until two weeks ago. I have to imagine if this was a regular time trial, he would not have been as sharp as he was against everyone in an individual pursuit as he was in the team pursuit. He probably got carried along by his team there. Um, Remco Evenepoel, your favorite rider, um, your your best friend, looked. I gasped. I visit. I audibly gasped when I saw how fit and tan he was during the team time trial that maybe the tannest Belgian I'd ever seen, the guy would have destroyed this um, team if this was an individual time trial. And his team, like you could see, had a hard time even staying on this wheel. Um, he's the, In my mind, he's the huge loser here. Like He would have probably beaten Roglic by quite a bit, who is going to need to build into this race. So that aspect, I, I just don't love that, where it's like, well, Evanapol's super fit and he's getting penalized for it. And this is probably as fit as he's going to be all race. He's only going to degrade from here. And he doesn't get a chance to build up a time cushion with his hard-earned fitness. So th that aspect is a little odd. I mean, this whole Dutch start, great country. I mean, they love cycling. Like it was, I, I loved seeing all the fans out. But three foreign starts in a year for you know every Grand Tour starting in a foreign country. It's a little. It feels so decoupled from the rest of the race for me. Like, do you remember anything from the Danish start of the Tour? It just feels like a complete almost like an exhibition and then you get back to the home country and the racing starts so i don't yeah if you missed the first weekend of this vuelta you didn't miss much would be my thesis yeah and for listeners spencer and i don't share our questions with each other ahead of time but i'm wondering if he might have used pegasus or palantir to get access to my questions in advance of this recording because <laughs> i do live close to the palantir hq so yeah uh shout out peter teal um Thank you. I'm just wondering if you got access to my questions. I had the same thoughts about a foreign start for the Vuelta. So I'm just thinking about the allure of professional cycling. I do think that part of the joy of being a spectator, viewer, fan of the sport is the esoteric nature of the sport. But I also think that there's so much complexity. And once you get to a certain point, maybe it's gone a bit too far. So when it comes to the team time trial, I'm thinking about somebody tuning in, you're a fan of the sport, you're cheering for Roglic or Evan Pohl, whatever the case may be, you have a favorite writer. And ostensibly, the team time trial is a test of the strength of the team. Cycling is indeed a team sport. And you're watching the race. And then it's not actually about the entire team. You can drop several riders because it's the time of the fifth rider to cross the line in the team time trial. So if we're testing the strength of the team, why are we cutting it off at the fifth rider? It just seems it's esoteric. It's kind of confusing and it's not actually a true test of the strength of the team. It seems arbitrary. What do you think, Spencer? It's kind of my favorite part of it because it adds strategy to it. Uh, yes, it is esoteric. It makes no sense. Honestly, the team time trial makes no sense. Like I put time, I put GC standings in my newsletter every day for the updates. And it's just like one through five are all in the same time and they're switching every day. I'm just thinking about my father-in-law trying to follow this. It's like, I, it's not even worth my time to explain it to him because it is so silly and 
I, yeah, I don't even think we need team time trials. Maybe that's a hot take, but I like that they've been ironed out a little bit. I like that you can drop three riders because it does raise the, you know, it's a like, well, do you have three guys go really hard in the first half and they drop off one by one? Do you try to finish with everyone? Because in the last half, you're all taking shorter pulls. Just as a standalone event, I think that makes it interesting. It also gave us a little peek into like bigger picture strategy where Enios finished with all eight riders. Um, and you wonder like, well, is that a strategy to make the, them go faster on course or do they have, so, they basically have eight separate GC leaders in their team and did no one want to drop off and lose time because, you know, Carlos Rodriguez thinks he could win this Welta and he doesn't want to sacrifice, sacrifice himself for the team. So, you know, they're all just riding for their own GC ambition. So that I, I found that interesting, but I don't really have a defense for it. It is completely made up. Like, there's no rhyme or reason. Where do they come up with the number five? Yeah, why not have it be all eight riders? So if we just got rid of the team time, we're actually, I, we actually get, I feel like we get a lot of comments that we're TT haters. So the, I, I apologize if, if we're being too harsh in the team time trial, but I just, yeah, I do think it's kind of weird and maybe we don't need it. But having yeah. said that, I don't know, I kind of enjoyed watching it. It's a, it's a easy little intro into the race not too uh there's not too much but then as i say that there were huge time gains so in a completely you know anticlimactic way like you're just watching a bunch of teams ride around a city really fast and then it's like oh Roglic is has a minute head start on some riders so the whole thing is odd uh, yeah i don't know not not great articulate thoughts for me but i have no defense for it the most memorable team time trial that I can recall was Ted King getting time cut from the Tour de France uh, during the team time trial. And gosh, what year was this? Do you remember this? A, I think it was on a road bike too. Do you? Yeah, I think it was like 2014 <laughs> or 2015 because he was yeah. so hurt he couldn't ride his time trial bike. Right. Yeah. So I think there can be drama in the team time trial. And you're right; it does introduce yet another vector of strategy, and strategy is and the dynamics within teams is part of what makes pro cycling so compelling. But I think it's, it's maybe just like a bit too much, especially at the outset. And especially when you have the start of the tour of Spain taking place in another country. So Spencer thinking about just the financial aspects of grand tours, I have to imagine that that's entirely the impetus for starting in another country what can you tell us about that yeah so they got paid the organizer aso got a 12 million euro check from the country of holland or like the tourism board to start there so it's 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 very lucrative um i think they try to do it they try not to do it every year they try to do it every other year um just to not dilute it probably you can keep commanding those higher fees it is all money driven. Like there's no other real reason. Something I do like about it though, to defend it is that like when we get back to Spain tomorrow, it's going to be lazy, lazy, um, crowds and racing. Like I noticed that with the tour where Denmark was so like the fans were so into it. And then we got back to France and it was like, Whoa, where'd all the fans go? So it does kind of breathe life into your race in a way where if you're in your home country, I noticed with the Giro, like Road cycling in particular doesn't seem that strong in Italy. It seems like everyone's on mountain bikes. Um, I was often the only person on the road 
in, in each ride that I did in Italy. I didn't really see that many road cyclists. And when you watch the Giro, it shows. I mean, it's a lot of it almost looks like the COVID protocols are still in effect. There's just like no fans on a lot of climbs. So when you go to another country, you get a little bit of a, a boost in juice from the viewers who are like, I, I couldn't even see the meters to go in the sprints on stages two and three at this uh, Vuelta because there were so many fans on the side of the road. So outside of money, that would be one of the reasons that you just get like this like massive fans so excited to watch your race where in your home country you're maybe taken for granted a little bit and who would you say sees that financial benefit it's the it's aso the organizer of the race and that's it and then the teams this is what's crazy is i i'm not i don't know the details of this but i believe the teams you get paid some fee to to do the race and it originally covered all your costs the fee hasn't been increased for like 20 years so the teams actually lose a lot of money at these races because they're, the reimbursement is not grown with inflation. And so the teams just like have to pay to like get all their stuff back to Spain. And so they spend a ton of money, they get all the downsides, and then the organizer just keeps the money for themselves. That seems a little crazy. Right. And today's then not actually a rest day for the writers either. No, I, I don't know the details of that. I mean, if I, if I was a writer... I probably would have wanted to travel last night and then maybe just rest today. Yeah, they're probably all flying either late last night or early this morning. It's not a real rest day. And then you, I mean, it would be super disruptive. Like, I don't know, even if you fly a few hours, I don't feel particularly good the next day riding a bike. So I can't imagine this is popular with any team or rider. And we don't have details on the flight. If you have any details on how the riders traveled, it's likely a charter again, I would guess. And we likely had all of the riders in one large metal tube with the most recent Omicron variant circulating in the air. Yeah, but Omicron knows to respect big events. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, riders will get it. Yeah, but I mean, kind of going back to this, who sees the financial benefit? The sport needs to be, there's a serious need for some kind of disruption to the financial model of the sport, which we all know. But the riders, the teams, no one is seeing a financial benefit besides ASO, it doesn't seem. No, uh, no. Yeah. I mean, I guess like Yumbo in a roundabout way, like yeah, sure. they get to promote their Dutch sponsors in Holland, but it's not a real, that's... I mean, you're really grasping for straws there. Um, I, I don't think ASO is pot. I don't think a single team likes ASO. Like they, they only put up with them because they own the Tour de France and you have to do the Tour de France to get sponsors. Yeah, but perhaps jumping ahead a bit here, Spencer, but thinking about some of these uh, sp sprint finishes that we've seen so far, from a viewing point of view, uh, particularly Sunday's stage, their routing finishes underneath multiple overpasses and in areas where it's almost impossible to provide a clean view of the action yeah, we, that's we actually happening on Saturday. Like, it was, you could sorry, it was that on Saturday. On. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I just wonder if that's a consideration at all. Again, these host cities I'm assuming are paying some kind of fee to be part of the race and, and that's informing part of what's happening from a route selection point of view, but it seems no consideration is being made to, Hey, how is this event going to look on TV? And in particular, the most important 
part of the race, which is the final kilometer. On Saturday, it was like, yeah, it was literally the only action of the day was the final K and we missed half of it because it was so dark. You couldn't see it. I don't think anyone thinks about it. And obviously like we're talking a big game. If we were actually tasked with doing this, we maybe would have ended up with the same problem where they're like, well, let's finish here. Oh, we can't do that for this and this reason. And then you just kind of get stuck with what you have. But actually it's, it brings up a good point. I feel like this isn't cycling never thinks about the optics, but that's actually really important. That's gotta be like a majority of the reason anyone would actually ever watch a race is just if it's visually appealing to them. And it's part of, it's like my pet theory as to why us races don't work a lot where Colorado, beautiful state. I live here. I found the USA Pro Cycling Challenge like very unappealing to watch because we just do have a lot of open space, even high up in the mountains. Like when you're going from mountain peak to mountain peak, it's just so open and it just looks like you're riding along like an empty waste of nothing versus Europe where it's so much more compact and it looks better on TV. Where I have a like when people are like, oh, I love that race. I'm like, God, I actually don't have a lot of like positive memories from watching the race in my home state because I thought it looked a lot of the routes were so poorly planned and took them through a lot of unappealing looking places that I never actually really wanted to watch it that much. They raced on I-70 for parts of that race, didn't they? Yeah, which is, I guess, which is crazy. That's not good for for viewing, but it's also just the realities of the U.S. where we were talking about this in the pre-record. There's so many roads in Europe because people have been there forever. I mean, I-70 just got built like not that long ago. I think like in the 80s is when they finished the, the blasting through the mountains. So there's not really any other roads in a lot of the part of the state. You're on I-70 or you're going off-road. So it's just kind of a weird reality. We can I would love to have like a separate episode about like the economics and is there even a business case for doing high-level races in the US or should we just be doing like grassroots gravel events and maybe GP Montreal and Quebec City are as good as it's ever going to get in North America. But that is part of the problem. We just don't have a lot of roads in a lot of our mountainous areas. But we do have the Eisenhower Tunnel, the ninth wonder of the world. I think it's Maybe the it might be the most expensive road project ever undertaken because it was like so poorly managed. And I think the fault lines moved when they were building it. So next time you drive through it, just think this is the most expensive road ever built. And it doesn't look that good, nor is it that functional. So that's uh we're struggling in in this country with infrastructure. Hopefully Mayor Pete can get on the case though. One other thing that happened prior to the start of the Vuelta. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do want to spend a little bit of time on it. Nairo and Tram at all. Yeah. So this is, this, I'm glad you asked about this. So Nairo Quintana was supposed to race this Vuelta. Wouldn't have really figured in the GC in my opinion, because I don't think this Vuelta is actually that hard. Um, and there's a lot of team time trial and time trial kilometers. Um, it's actually perfect for Ruglitch. They probably made it that way. So he would come, but yeah, so Nairo, pretty good tour. Comes out that he used tramadol, which is an opioid at the tour, which is banned by cycling, but not banned by WADA, which is important because it means if you test positive, you're just disqualified from the event in which you were using it. There's no ban implemented. They don't have the authority to do that. The, the thing I've actually been, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but I've been surprised at how, you know, I was just watching like the GCN post game show and they're basically the host or was like, this is BS. Why are they hassling him? It's a painkiller. He was just taking it because he was in pain. But 
if I'm remembering correctly, they banned it because you're whacked out on an opioid. You're basically on um, heroin or like uh, what's morphine going 60 miles an hour with other riders. There was tons of crashes before this was banned because you're, you're on drugs while basically racing a bike at high speeds right next to people. It's a huge safety concern for everyone else in the race if you're high as a kite while racing. I, I was surprised at the pushback this got and the fact that it's clearly banned and, and Quintana used it anyway. That also makes me think, well, if you're willing just to straight up break the rules and you're pretty confident you're not going to test positive for this, like what else are you doing? You know, that's where my mind went on this. What about you? Yeah, I I think it's another thing where the conflicting protocols, because as I understand it, Quintana could have actually done this race yeah, had he elected to do so. I don't actually do don't so, understand. Right? He just should have raced. Honestly, I, if I was advising him, it's to just take the DQ and just keep going on with your career and say, oops, sorry, I was in pain. Right. And now he has dropped out of the Vuelta because he's going to fight this in the CAS, uh, the Court for Arbitration and Sport. He's going to lose. I mean, it's a binary test. He failed it twice. And... I guess I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know if he has the I ate a steak excuse, a tainted supplement, my protein powder was bunk. Uh, someone dosed me at the bottleneck. Yeah. I don't know. Which what are he's- those are all like very fruitful excuses. I mean, if you're a doper and you're listening to this, never go to CAS. Just just go on with your life. It's a huge waste of your time and money to fight this, and then hire Andrew strategic consul- strategic communication consultant to just to say, yeah, I was fed some steak. <laughs> <laughs> and it like plants a seed of doubt, but don't spend any resources and time doing this. It like pains me to watch riders do this. Just keep going on with your career. I, I yeah, I would never advise someone to spend this much time and money in a sporting court to try to prove their innocence, which you're never even going to do. Yeah. And of course, predictably, bike Twitter goes crazy over it. Accusations of, you know, if he did this, what else has he been lying to us about? And then a protracted debate about, whether tramadol is actually performance enhancing or not. And I dug up the study that I think is, uh, is the study that's most pertinent here. And we could drop a link in the show notes if you want or not. Maybe we'll throw it up on Twitter. But there is a study that shows that in a 20-minute time trial effort, cyclists do see it's a greater than 1% increase in uh, average wattage output. The thing that I can't derive from this study, I don't know how highly trained these cyclists are. So I don't know if a world tour level cyclist could expect the same amount of improvement as the subjects in the study. But there is a study that does show that athletes are able to sustain a higher power output in a 20 minute effort. So that would definitely help in a race. And then the study also took a look at whether athletes experience some level of cognitive impairment or uh, reduced ability to handle complex cognitive tasks while on this drug. That was more inconclusive from my reading of the study. Um, But it's not good that people are continuing to litigate this on Twitter. I mean, they certainly can. Like That's one of the hallmarks of liberal democracy is that we can all have vigorous debates about uh, ideas and things that happen in the world. And we should equally cycling just needs to figure out 
you know, what level of outside supporter supplementation does it accept? Does it reject? And then I think it needs to get that in line with whatever's happening with WADA or other governing bodies, because it's not good to have these conflicting protocols. Even experts don't really quite understand the nuances of all of this. I have a, I think, I actually think cycling shouldn't even be associated with WADA. Just just don't even compete. I don't even know why they deal with it. Just don't have a pro race in the Olympics and just do whatever you want to do. Like pro, like the NBA is not complying with WADA code. They just like have their own testing protocol and they make their own rules. I don't know. I, I'm not a big WADA fan. I think it's a huge, I don't know. Like running does it because you need the Olympics for track and field. Cycling does not need the Olympics. I actually have no idea why they even bother with WADA. They should just have their own rules because when you have conflicting stuff like this, it really muddies the water. With the performance enhancing stuff, I guess I could see it. Like if you're not in pain, you can go harder. It probably helps. Probably the practical gain is, you know, if you have wear and tear, like I think Quintana did crash at that tour. You know, if your hip hurts because you crashed, if you're on a painkiller and your hip doesn't hurt, you can probably ride quite a bit harder than if your hip was hurting. So that's probably where the performance enhancing element comes in. I I do sometimes wonder, it was like big, remember Tom, what was his name? Tom Simpson died at the tour because he, you know, the thing used to be you get gooned out on like meth um, because then you could just ride hard, right? You're, you're on a drug, an upper that is just making you push, push, push more than you maybe you'd be able to convince yourself to do. Um, I don't think people are taking methamphetamines anymore, but I do wonder about, they call them like finish bottles, which are bottles like basically jammed with like a lethal amount of caffeine that you take in the last 20 minutes of a race. Um, I've used them before and felt like I was going to die. Probably not good for you. So I do sometimes wonder like what type of over-the-counter cocktails are, are these riders taking and is tramadol maybe just part of that and that's what showed up in this test, but, and it is not good. I actually just, I, I, why do you think he didn't do the Vuelta? I, that's the weirdest part to me. Just like go ahead and race. Um, I can't quite square that with the rest of this case. Yeah. I don't get it either because when this doesn't work, what's his next move? Yeah. You look really, then if you just kept going and be like, wow, we don't, we don't know how this happened, but we're trying to get to the bottom of it. Now, that's what British cycling said when, they had EPO and testosterone delivered to the HQ for years. They just said, well, we're just trying to figure out who did this. And then, of course, they'll never figure it out. But they told us that it made us feel better. Like, I don't quite understand why that's not his reaction. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know what he's doing. I want to talk to you about something else, Spencer. So when you take a look at Yumbo Visma, looking incredibly strong, you would think Roglic has a very strong chance of winning this race. However, if something were to happen, who do you see as the number two GC rider there? On on Yumbo or at the race? Yeah, on Yumbo. On Yumbo. At the at the race? No, at the race. Oh, at the race. Who's their yeah. backup? Like, if he hits the deck and we see his cheeks again, like, who's going to? <laughs> I I for the record, I don't think I think the reason he's won this race three times in a row is because Spain is a more sparsely populated country. So there's not the road furniture you get in Northern Europe and there's less roads. So they do race on bigger roads a lot. So it is, a, it's the perfect grand tour for Ruglitch because there's less, I don't want to say skill, but um, there's less chances of crashing. You actually don't see that many big crashes at the Vuelta. So that's good for Ruglitch. Yeah. But if we do see the cheeks, 
Who's number two? I, I kind of have a hot take. I don't know if they have a number two. I mean, obviously, Sepp Kuss, they're saving. Um, if you watch that team time trial, he sat at the back the whole time, which is unusual. Normally, you'd have a weak rider at least try to rotate through and then get dropped. The fact that they just had him sit at the back and not take any polls and just be a dead weight on the team would tell me that they're trying to preserve him, have him not lose time on the opening day. I am not a Sepkus believer for the GC. I think we've seen him, um, I think that was last year, they kept giving him chances in one-week stage races, and he was not good. Um, there's a big difference between being able to ride hard selectively on mountains, especially in the first 75% of a mountain, sit up. Uh, that's like Sepp Kusa's specialty. That's also Rafa Micah's specialty. We saw Micah give a go at the GC. He just couldn't really do it. Um, it's hard to be a GC rider. So uh, this is a slightly unpopular opinion, but I think it's Ruglitch or bust for them. I don't think Kus is a realistic, you know, maybe he could get like 10th, top 10, but they don't, they, don't, it's, they don't have a winner in this team outside of Ruglitch or even a podium finisher. Right. I'm looking at the GC results right now. What? Why is, uh, I may have missed this. Why is Rohan Dennis 307 down already? So he sat up on stage. Well, I guess it was either stage two or three. But because he finished in the team contract. Yeah. So yesterday he finishes two minutes back. My guess is they're just having him basically stages two and three were just rest days for him. You know, he would like set pace during the early portions of the stage. And then it's really the strategy of, you know, like if you can, instead of taking the stairs, take the elevator, instead of sitting, lie down, like it's just extreme energy conservation in the early parts of a grand tour. And they're just having them ride easy into the finish because what would be the point of having them ride hard? And that shows that they aren't holding them back as some sort of GC option that They've kind of concluded the Dennis GC experiment is over and he is a support rider here for us. Yeah, I think that's on my mind because that's exactly what I was thinking. They gave him his chance earlier in the year. We know that he's on very good equipment, right? Like that used to be Dennis's big beef, Yeah, right? We know he's on excellent equipment. He had the shot at being a GC rider and yeah, maybe that's over. And I think, I don't know. I don't know Rowan Dennis. He seems like a complicated person, but potentially he never really wanted to be one. You know, he did have a lot of outbursts and I'd say like emotional troubles in his career. You, you don't hear from him that much anymore since he stopped being a GC. Um, I mean, he was never really a GC rider, but someone who was chasing GC seems like he's maybe a little bit happier. So maybe that was part of the deal. Like he comes to Yumbo Visma. He doesn't want to ride for GC. They don't need him to ride for GC. Just be a support rider for us. And we're going to pay a bunch of money. So I, potentially he's happy in that role. Um, who is your, assuming Roglic does not win. Like, let's just say he's not fit because the man did have a broken back four weeks ago. Who is your favorite for the win at this race? Not Evan Poole. Uh, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I just, I don't see Evan Pohl winning. I'm like, I'm scanning. I would say Carapaz, but his wreck, I wanted to talk about this. You know, he had the, we were talking about how there's less road furniture in Spain, but we're not to Spain yet. He had a, and Carapaz had the roundabout wreck and gosh, like having it that early in the race, it's, I don't know 
how hard he went down, but it's not good to. It's never good. People it's always never say good. That. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. Like, yeah, there's not like a light good. way to ride into no. a piece of road furniture and land on your shoulder or back. It's uh, it's gonna take it out of you. So to me, all right, he's gonna struggle to win the race because of that, in my opinion. But and then I think okay, so like who else within Enios? Because we have a lot of hitters here. Who do you see within Enios? Like, if it's not Carapaz, who's the backup? This is a or crazy, was, right? Oh, sorry, go ahead. What were you gonna say? I or was Carapaz even the designated uh, GC rider? Just there's so many strong riders on Enios, and I think this is like classic Enios dilemma. A lot of really good riders, but like, do they have someone who's the actual winner, and can they have the level of coordination and support versus? people with very strong individual interests what do you think no um carapaz is a gc leader in his own mind that's actually one of the reasons i respect him the guy is like um he's kind of a dick <laughs> like just he's just always racing for himself which i i kind of like it's refreshing um he's a killer believes in himself that's how he won the volta or this year in 2019 he's leaving this team I don't think he's popular inside this team they're not really we saw when he crashed yesterday only two riders paste him back on i mean compare that to if you remember the benny hill scene of uh Vindigard crashing on stage five of the tour like there was five riders around him so he does not have a ton of support inside that team one fever dream pick for me this is completely like jet lag fueled teo gagenhart i mean we saw the guy put down like world class apparently he had the second best watt per kilo performance in the history of team sky slash Ineos. And at that Giro, he won in 2020. And then we've seen nothing from him since. But that that skill, that power has to be in there somewhere. Um, and he's completely under the radar here. If I'm just scanning through and looking at, like, who are we not hearing about who could win this race? It's definitely Teo. Um, something to keep an eye on. He won't win. I mean, if we're, like, just playing the odds, not a, not a high chance of winning, but that the talent is in there. We know that he's capable of it. Um, similar to, like, Jai Henley, who... We saw at the Giro, like, wow, that guy can really throw down numbers. We've never seen him win a race past the month of May, uh, which would indicate maybe he won't win this. Um, and then I like Joao Almeida. I'm always, I'm, a, I'm an Almeida fanboy. Um, if he can overcome the dysfunction on his UAE team, I think he could, he could maybe win this race. Spencer, what did you make of Lefebvre's disparaging remarks about Philippe in advance of the Vuelta? <laughs> I don't understand. Man, that guy doing this. I don't understand his management style. He kind of reminds me of like Jose Mourinho, who's like a soccer manager who's just always insulting his own team. Maybe he thinks that it's motivating. I don't. Even him with Evanapol, he's like not putting pressure on Evanapol, but he signed him to like an eight-year contract and is like in in many ways saying that he expects him to be like the savior of the team going forward, where it's like, that seems like an unrealistic amount of pressure to put on a 22 year old. Um, yeah, I don't know. And he, he's obviously it's hard to, cause I think he's kind of a joker. Like I don't really like Patrick Lefebvre. I don't like the way he demeans as writers, but the kind of the ugly thing is it's almost like a Trumpian pitting your employees against each other. It tends to work well for him. I mean, that guy gets results out of writers. So, that's the, the, but then you could also push back and say, well, maybe he just has really good writers on his team and they would get as good, if not better results if he wasn't doing this to them in the press. I mean, what, what did you think about it? I almost wonder if Alaphilippe is in on the joke and this was just like yeah, another that is possible. 
right? Because I mean, you certainly can't believe everything that you see or all of the content that a team puts out, but looking at quick steps behind the scenes content from the quote unquote wolf pack, uh, you know, the dynamic within their team, they seem like a tight team. Alaphilippe seems like a very, in the best possible way, highly emotional writer seems to really care about his teammates, really cares about winning and is coming back from a pretty horrific crash. He's had a long recovery. I have to imagine he's hungry. You know, he has publicly stated he wants to win another world title. But gosh, what an odd thing for Lefebvre to say, hey, I'm not just paying you to win world championships. I'm paying you to win stages. At the same time that he's got Evanapol going for the overall victory. So like, really? Like, that's what you're expecting from Alaphilippe versus expecting him to ride and go all in on supporting Evanapol's victory right yeah but that's not the way they there's they've never won a grand tour in the history of their like it's like a 20 plus year history and there's a reason why i mean they clearly just don't they they don't understand it they probably don't have a need or desire to understand it but it's like yeah that's not a realistic expectation you can't come to a race with a grand tour contender and then also be like i want stage wins out of my riders and i'm not actually going to really support the grand tour rider and we're going to have him sprinting he was sprinting on stage two for the win what, what was that about remco evanapol that's crazy that's not how you win a grand tour so but everything with lefevre it's like it's crass but there is always a point in there if you think about a alaphilippe just won two consecutive world championships is anything going to bother him right wouldn't you just be like well I'm awesome. I just won back-to-back worlds, so get off my back. He does have a point. It is a little weird for these teams. They pay these guys huge salaries, and then they race uh, world championships for their national team, and then they win, and then the sponsor doesn't actually get any exposure. That is kind of a weird setup, um, and maybe maybe that's what he's doing with those comments. He's trying to like needle the UCI or like shine light on how ridiculous this is that Alaphilippe is winning world championships and then the man who pays a salary, Patrick Lefebvre, isn't actually seeing any benefit from that. Or is he telling us without telling us that he doesn't actually believe that they can win this race? Yeah, that also could be the case, actually. Saying we're here for Al- we're here to for Alaphilippe to win stages and pay no mind to the Evanapol in your in your sight of vision. Yeah, Spencer, I know you're gonna have to slide in a second, and you touched on this briefly, but just for fans out there, people enjoying the Vuelta, why is the dynamic so different at this race? And I think the Carapaz point you made is interesting because transfer season has happened and it's going to be ongoing. We'll see more transfers, but the most of the big names that are moving teams, we know where they're going now. And the incentives seem to be different within teams and the need to support riders who are on their way out is nil right so how does that change the dynamic at this race and are we seeing a level squads or these kind of b teams uh traditionally you're right traditionally it is like b teams and it's a party race like it's a it used to be a vacation like you go to the vuelta as your vacation like you remember andy schleck got thrown out of the race because he came home at five in the morning from the bars in the middle of the race so I think that used to, I think actually that was the party foul it was like, whoa, I'm getting thrown out. We're here to party. Like, what are you talking about, man? Um, it's not like that anymore though. I mean, this is a 
hotly contested Grand Tour. You could argue this start list is way better than the Giro. Um, I think for the past 10 years, the Vuelta has been the second best Grand Tour, second most powerful start list. You look at this Jumbo Bisma team, that's a strong team. Ineos is a strong team. Quickstep, strong team. Bike Exchange, strong team. UAE, strong team. I mean, these are serious riders. Like, look at Bora. That's a really, really packed team. Um, this is like, no, this is not your grandfather's Vuelta. This is a serious riders contesting the thing is like the spanish lifestyle does somehow infuse the racing where even though it's very important to win very good teams here um, it is more relaxed and it actually i kind of prefer it where a lot of and i I do think it maybe goes back to the roads and the routes a lot where you know the heart you know where the hard parts are they're like the 15 percent average gradient climbs and then you also know where the hard parts are not and you can just kind of cruise through those. And it's almost like uh, set pieces, like a football game where it's like, these are the plays and then these are not the plays and we're cruising during these parts. Um, maybe that is changing. We saw, it was maybe 2020, 2019, the Guadalajara stage where Movistar blew it up, Roglic crashed. They probably would have won the race if they would have kept the, pa- the pace on and they got convinced to take it off because it was in bad taste, I guess. Um, so, so you do su- see some like tour tactics here, but. Generally, it does just seem more of like a tranquilo type race. I'm not quite sure why, except other than the roots being more bifurcated. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you about before I have to go is Dylan Van Barl. So Carapaz is leaving Ineos. Um, I guess that's a big loss going to EF. And you mentioned there's no incentive to support him. But I would push back. And you're right. That's the way most teams think. But is that weird? Like, what if he just wins the race? That's still awesome for Ineos. They won a Grand Tour. I've never understood this obsession with so-and-so is leaving at the end of the year. Let's not support them to win a race that they're racing for our team currently. Uh, I, I, I just, you lose me on that. I don't totally get that logic if that happens in sports all the time. Like, uh, you know, the Warriors, the Golden State Warriors are losing players from their championship team this year. I don't think it, were they saying we can't support Gary Payton the second because he's leaving at the end of the year? Like he helped us win a championship. I, I actually think that's like a huge logic gap in professional cycling. But you are right that Carapaz won't get the support he was going to get. He would have gotten if he was staying at the team. You know, maybe the maybe they're saying, well, we want to give Carlos Rodriguez a chance because he's the future of this team. But I still think you just go with go with your best guys in the moment. Um, but then also Dylan Van Barl's leaving Ineos as well. He's at this race. Obviously, he won Roubaix, Perry Roubaix this year um, that we talked about in one of our first podcasts together. What, what is going on here? I mean, that seems like a big loss. Did that catch your eye at all? I mean, losing the Perry Roubaix winner, who's also maybe your most versatile, versatile domestique in stage races, seems like a big loss. Um, definitely something that stood out to me about maybe that some dysfunction going on at Ineos dysfunction or what is the higher level system that they're trying to create Enios seems to be struggling to find its identity again and they certainly have had many victories this season i'm thinking about tom pidcock not you know not on the road he just won the european mountain bike championships he's poised to win the cross-country olympic world mountain bike championships i would say i think that it's is like crazy by the way that he's not a full-time right? mountain biker and he's easily yeah. winning these races yeah it's nuts but i 
we're likely to see that. And he has a shot at winning Road World. So it, I think it's a big question mark. What direction are they headed? Who do they build the team around in the future? And what support are they trying to put in place versus kind of the mishmash of riders with varying levels of ambition, many of whom have the ability to win most of the races they enter if they actually had a team that was coherent. But I think losing Dylan Van Barl, huge loss. And to your point regarding the transfer market, I think this is another one of these aspects of the sport that's it's a bit esoteric. It feels dated, but the idea that by July, these riders know they're potentially or they are going somewhere else starting January 1, they're going to continue to compete for the team they're on for the next however many months until the season ends. And they're required to wear that team's kit and ride sponsored correct equipment until December 31st. So it's, it's super weird. It's super weird. It's the only sport because normally you would have a transfer window in the, in the season. Um, I think almost every sport except maybe football does that. So like Carapaz just would have gone to EF in June, you know, when he agreed to the contract. Right. And then that window ends, let's say August 1st, and then it opens again in the off season. So yeah, I don't understand why they do this. It actually seems like a huge, it's very antiquated. It makes no sense. Um, and I'm sure it adds a lot of headache for the teams having to deal with riders who are like one foot out the door, but they're not actually gone. That's a weird situation. Um, one thing about Ineos, I've just been wondering about, it seems, I think you said it's like incoherent. I mean, it's just like, it's like a mishmash, um, but they're all good, but it's, there's like no form to the strategy or to the team. And something I was thinking about over the weekend is, you know, they used to be an elder team and they would not worry about young riders. They would just wait for a rider to get good and then sign them um, like Egan Bernal. And you know, I wonder if, if you've noticed over the past few years, like teams are just locking young riders into like eight-year contracts, like Remco Evenepoel or Taddy Pogacar. Like those guys are all locked down for a long, long, long time. I wonder if that kind of screwed up their strategy a bit and caused them to overcorrect where now they sign like babies, <laughs> like Luke Plapp, Carlos Rodriguez. I guess he's not that young, like Ethan Hader. But then they end up with all these really talented youngsters who want opportunities, but they already have a pretty strong veteran core and they can't quite fit it all together like that kind of seems to be what's going on here where you have richard carapaz probably third or fourth best gc rider in the world but then you also have these young riders who want to prove themselves and don't want to ride for someone else so you end up with a really incoherent team um, i actually don't envy i don't envy the management team there trying to fit that together it just seems like a really really messy situation and, and, and it's my probably is my theory that this was probably brought along by the fact that you have to sign riders so young now because the they'll just get locked up by another team for eight years yeah it's an i think it's another of the ways in which cycling is becoming more like european football you know we've talked about cycling 2.0 and this idea of securing talent at a very young age i mean we're definitely not seeing 11 and 12 year old cyclists uh, being put into a farm system for these world tour teams, but it's starting to happen at a younger and younger age. And yeah, I think you're right. I mean, look at, look at Enios at the tour. They had grandpa Garrett Thomas, like no disrespect, but an elder statesman of the Peloton, right? 
And on the other end of the spectrum, they're now doing what they have to do to compete with some of the other super teams that have massive budgets such as they do. And they're securing much younger talent. And then I think the question is, and like Evanapol is a good example of what is the delta between when you bring on this incredibly uh, talent with seemingly a very high level of potential ability or achievement, and then how long do you give that before it happens or maybe you've made a bad investment? Yeah, it does seem like they get stuck in the middle a lot because, as I said, they have a ton of talent, young talent, and then Grandpa Garrett is actually better than all of them. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like the convert, like Pitcock's awesome. He's going to be a star. He won Alp Duez, great rider. Will he ever win a Grand Tour? Like, I don't know because he's racing mountain bikes. Probably can't do that if you want to be a Grand Tour winner. But it just seems like if you set Pitcock aside, they have a hard time converting people from like young talent to star. Um, Igor Bernal was obviously really good, but I feel like they got him a little bit later. They didn't really turn him into a star. Where you have, if you just look at the roster here, like these are really talented youngsters, like Carlos Rodriguez, Ethan Hader, Luke Blapp, even Pavel Sivakov. He's a great example. Like so talent, so much talent. Um, probably should be a Grand Tour contender. Will probably never be a Grand Tour contender on Enios. Like it just seems like they have a little bit difficult difficulty like turning that knob to really get someone around the corner and into a star. They just have like a lot of like glob of young talent, but then none of them can actually displace the older core of the team that was built by like original Brailsford and and those guys. And it's just something to keep an eye on. I don't really have a concrete thought on that, but it, it is strange to me that like Garrett Thomas is still better than everybody else. Like how, how could that be possible? It's the glasses. It's the glasses. It's the glasses. And I have more and I have more Garantomic questions for you. I was actually stacking these up um on, on vacation. Did not want to be, but I just kept thinking about Garant Thomas. Could not get him out of my head. But I do have to run to another recording, so I'm gonna have to let you go, Andrew. But we will hopefully be back next week to check in on the Volta and go over um, more of our Garant Thomas questions as they come up. And if you want to holler at us on Twitter, I'm at Vance. At Hardway Pod. I'm at BTP Cycling. And And we'll see you next time. And we'll see you next time. We bid you peace. (laughs) Yes, that's the most important thing. All right, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week.